Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to our epistle reading, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Uh, this morning is the fourth sermon in a series this fall where we're going through Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning we've arrived at verse 27. Paul has just finished his personal update, telling them about his trial and praying for them before that. And in verse 27, we have the beginning of the, the main body of the letter. Everything up to this verse is kind of like, hey, how's it going? How was your, yeah, but now we're down to the business at hand, okay? In fact, verse 27, the first half of it is the theme of the whole letter. It's the central thesis of the letter. In fact, he begins verse 27 with the Greek word monon. We get our word mono from it. Um, not the disease, but the idea of one, okay? It's an, it's an adverb, it means only. It's um, a way in Greek, it's an offhanded way in Greek of pacing around a room, stopping, everybody's looking at you, holding up one finger and saying, there's one thing I want to tell you. This is the theme. Paul is saying, look, if you get nothing else, if you doze off during the rest of the sermon, right? There's one thing I want you to know. Always remember this. And then he says his theme of the whole letter. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. Now that's my favorite translation of the phrase. What's interesting is most of the modern English translations shy away from what I how I just translated it. You see, when Paul writes this word about your public behavior, it's a very tricky word to translate into English. And, if, and this is no big deal, nothing to be afraid of. Those of you who know multiple languages, you know that it's not always easy to go from one language to another, to, from one word in a language to one word in another language. And sometimes you have to say, well, it's sort of this. No, the person repeats it back. No, not that. It's kind of this, that. All right. This word is only used here in all the New Testament. So it's tricky to translate because there's not a bit, lot of biblical context for this word. There's not a lot of times in the New Testament where this word is used. So we get kind of accustomed to how it's being handled. But it was used a lot in the culture of that day. Now, I'm going to pronounce the word in Greek so that you can hear it because it's a Greek word that's root comes over to our language a lot. Okay. It's politeiste. Now, in that word is buried a, a, a root that comes into our language. The root is polis, as in metropolis. In fact, people in this room who know Greek and Latin know that the word polis is translated in English typically as, anybody know? City. So he's made a verb out of the noun city. We also translate it into citizen. City, you can hear the word city in the word citizen. Same root at play, okay? 
So the word he uses here, it's a command, it's an imperative, and he's saying, let your citizeny behavior, your kind of public behavior, citizenship behavior, the behavior of yours that plays out in public. If he was writing today, he might say, let your Facebook comments. Look, this is really important, and I'm belaboring the point. Paul is saying... You are citizens of the city of God. Now act like it. You are citizens of Philippi, right? We saw this the very first week in the very first verse when Paul writes to the saints in Christ in Philippi. And I said that first week that in Paul in his letters, he always refers to us in two dimensions, who we are in Christ and who we are in the place we live. We are in Christ and we are in Philippi. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and citizens of Harrisonburg. And we have to be faithful to both. And our public behavior in our city, the things we do that people see, must match up to our citizenship in the kingdom of God. We must be faithful ambassadors. We, when people look at the church... They should see what the kingdom of God is like. Now, so the way I translate verse 27 and, or the translation somebody else has done that I prefer is this. The one thing that's important is that your public behavior match up to the gospel of the king. Now, look, we are Christians who live in a culture that is fundamentally sort of Christian and sort of not Christian. There are aspects of America that are profoundly Christian. There are aspects of the way our city operates that are profoundly Christian. But there are also things going on. There are also keys of power, doors of power, levers of power that are being pulled that are very different than Christianity would say. So how are we going to live in the midst of this city? Paul says the most important thing is that we as a church live in such a way that even though we're surrounded by threats and dark patterns of behavior, when the people of Harrisonburg look at the church in Harrisonburg, they see a way of life that they long for don't believe is possible, but are profoundly attracted to. The gospel of the king is the news that the God who created has acted decisively in the world to say time's up on the messy and damaging paths that our culture lays out. And God has done this through Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. In his power for miracles, he demonstrates his kingdom. In his teachings, Jesus explains the kingdom. In his death, he secured the victory of God's kingdom. And in his resurrection, he inaugurated God's kingdom. And as Christians, we are citizens of that kingdom. And so we have to act like citizens of that kingdom. This is about our public behavior, our political life. It's, it's interesting that the major modern English translations 
reduce a word that's fundamentally about politics to just live like so that you can think he just means the way you act. No, he means the way you act politically. And most modern English translations strip that out because we have cooperated with a worldview that says religion, when you're involved in politics, we get wars. Keep religion, keep politics out of religion. You deal with morality. You deal with private issues. Now, now, here, here, little boy, pat, pat. Let the government take care of everything else. Now, what exactly does Paul mean when he talks about behavior that matches up to the kingdom? Well, the good news is that's what the rest of the paragraph explains. In fact, this is one big section from verse 27 all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. The whole section is the center of the letter, and he maps out everything he's trying to say there. This morning, we're just going to look at this first paragraph, and we're going to pick back up right where we left off. Verse 27, the one thing I would stress is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. So that, and then he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. Now, you know what it means if he's absent. We saw this. It means he's like dead, right? So that whether I live or die, what's more important than my life or death is that I hear of you. And then he gives out three particular behaviors that are the public demonstration of the gospel of the king. First, stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Second, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And third, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So God wants to put three particular behaviors on our radar so that we as a church have a public reputation that matches up to the gospel of the king. The first behavior is unity. The second one is teamwork. And the third one is fearlessness. Unity. Look, he says, what I mean by this public behavior is I mean you stand firm in one spirit with one mind publicly. When our city looks at the church in Harrisonburg, when our city looks at our church, does it see unity? When it looks at the church in Harrisonburg, there's only one church in Harrisonburg. There's a bunch of little like places where it meets on Sunday. But when it looks at the church in Harrisonburg, does it see unity? Unity. Does it see it within incarnation and with the church around the corner and down the street? Fundamental to being a church in a non-Christian culture is unity. Now that's hard. It's going to be really hard as the upcoming presidential election plays out. Because we all know that CNN treats Republicans as the enemy, as hypocrites, as morally repugnant, as greedy, as selfish and not to be trusted. And Fox News treats the Democrats in the same way. And it will be easy for us to get sucked into that. What are you doing now in the lead up? to the presidential election to make sure that when people look into this church, they can see a church that demonstrates to the city fiscal conservatives and social justice-oriented progressives can get along and see each other with grace and dignity as people who aren't idiots, who just don't know as much as me. What are you doing now so that this parking lot can be the parking lot in the city with Trump stickers and Biden or whoever is running, and it's a group of people who get along? 
What are you doing now to get us there? What are you doing now to build the kind of unity amongst ourselves that is a real unity, not a polite, we just don't talk about politics kind of unity? And what, are we, and, and what are you doing about all the little slights and hurts you experience by being together in a church? You know, the Bible is tricky on what to do when somebody hurts you. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 4 says, don't say a thing to them. Verse 5 says, go and talk to them. <laughs> Proverbs 26 verse 4 says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become wise in his own eyes. Which one do you do? That's the point. The point is it takes wisdom to know. And some of us are cowards in never saying anything. And some of us are jerks in always saying something. Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 says, if you're going to offer your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother. Come to terms quickly. Deal with stuff. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8 says, don't deal with stuff. Love covers a multitude of sins. Cover it up. Overlove it. Over mercy, grace. Don't become like super getting on to each other for every little offense. Here's the deal. If you love to like deal with stuff, maybe you need to memorize the other passage. And if you love to avoid stuff, maybe you need to memorize that other. See, it, what it takes to get along is incredible wisdom. It takes wisdom in knowing when to deal with stuff and knowing when to just outlove it. Unity, real unity requires this. One of the reasons we have geographically oriented small groups is so that there is at least one mechanism of community in our lives that doesn't let us leave when we can't work something out. Because it's in sticking in there. There's one place in our church you don't get to pick. You pick which service you go to. You pick if you wear a head covering or if you just think, Ain't nothing needing to cover this, right? You get to pick so many things. In our small groups, we've picked that. It's not biblical. They got to be like this. It's just like we live in an America where we all get to move away from people we don't like. One place, stick it out. Learn the wisdom. Learn the skills it takes to have unity. But let me shift gears because the unity he's talking about here is not simply unity within our church. It's unity between the churches. What are you doing to pursue unity with the other churches in town? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm trying to get to know pastors who don't baptize babies. Bless their little hearts. <laughs> I'm getting to know. I, I am, I've made a commitment. Every month I spend an afternoon with a group of 12 to 15 pastors in our city from all different denominations. We drink coffee together. We talk about life together. We're investing in getting to know one another. Once a year, we go away for 24 hours to pray. Some drink alcohol. Some people think drinking alcohol in that group is a sin. Some pray in tongues. Others of us, while they're praying in tongues, we look around at each other and think, what in the world are these people doing? <laughs> it's Mennonites. It's Baptists. It's Presbyterians. It's Anglicans. It's Pentecostals. We're also beginning to ask each other for help. Last week, Duck asked me if I'd come teach at their church on sexuality and gender. 
In the last week, I've visited with five different pastors seeking their help for a major issue our church is up to that we can't pull off on our own. Unity is hard to pursue. It is even harder to pursue if you don't care about holiness, which comes up in the rest of this chapter. He says we have to pursue both unity and holiness. Pursuing unity is hard. Pursuing holiness is hard. Pursuing them both at the same time is like impossible. But that's what this letter calls us to. We'll see that. We'll see that unity is a lot easier if you don't care about holiness. You just all get together and act like disagreement doesn't matter. Holiness is a lot easier if you don't care about unity. You just set your own rigorous standards and split off from everybody else who disagrees with you. We're going to come back to this in a few weeks, but for now, let's follow the lead of this particular passage. It's focusing on unity and ask ourselves, are you doing the hard work of pursuing unity, which sometimes means suck it up, buttercup, and don't say anything, and sometimes it means step forward and say something. Are you doing the hard work to pursue unity within our church and with other churches so that when people in Harrisonburg who are not Christians, they look at the church in Harrisonburg, wouldn't it be amazing if they say, well, you know, I disagree with so much, but one thing's for sure, man, they are united. When the people of Harrisonburg look at the church of Harrisonburg, the one church, remember there's only one church in Harrisonburg, do they see unity? Because if they don't, then our public behavior is not matching up to the gospel of the king. And so we should repent and work on it. The second thing he brings up here is teamwork. This is at the end of verse 27. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This term striving, it comes in his day, it came from the world of war and athletics. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. A more literal wooden translation is striving side by side in the faithfulness that advances the gospel. I mean, to nerd out on you, if you're an English grammar person, it's called a dative of advantage. It means this faith advantages the gospel. So we have to strive in the kind of faithfulness that brings advantage, that moves the gospel forward. I love our brothers and sisters over at East Side. And at Cornerstone, and at Horizon Christian Fellowship, and Dayton Mennonite, and we need to learn to see one another as Christians we are striving side by side with. A little earlier in the verse, he uses the phrase, stand firm. Another phrase that he took from the world of war and from the world of athletics. If the gospel is going to advance in Harrisonburg, then our public reputation and our public behavior, our online behavior, our voting behavior, the way we talk and act when, we, when others see us, it must match up to the values of the kingdom, the, the kingdom we're citizens of. It must display unity and it must display teamwork. Now, there are two ways I think this can play out for us, this display of teamwork. One is, what does it look like inside this church to be a team? There's lots of ways that happens, but if we're taking our cue from the, from the letter of the Philippians, he's talked already about fellowship, unity, team, and he used it around money. He did this back in chapter 1, verse 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel and the word partnership is fellowship and it's fellowship it's the word koinonia and it's fundamentally 
about when people pile their money together to accomplish a cause. Now, I want to encourage and exhort you to be a team player with your money. See, this is the way we need to think about tithing. The Bible commands, God commands us to tithe. Bring 10% of our money to the Lord in worship. And I think that there's a lot of people who don't tithe because they like to control their money. And when you tithe at this church, you, you give it up. And we've got this amazing parish council that on your behalf comes up with strategies for how we're going to spend our money. But make no mistake about it, what we're doing with our tithe is we're all tithing our money together. Some people give lots and lots, many, many thousands of dollars a year. They make lots and lots of money. 10% is huge, right? And some people make very little. And they, we put our fives and our 50,000s together and we pile them up. And what do we do as a team? We plant churches. We start children's ministry and youth ministry. And we build this building and, and we open it up to the public. And we do all of these things. My wife and I, we don't actually put money in the basket. Because when I try to do that, I always forget to do that. So we get our bank to just send a check straight to the church. And so what I try to do is every time the basket comes around, I try to imagine, wow, Heather's putting her money in. And my money's going in. And, you know, all, all of us, we're piling our money together. And as a team, we're taking this pile of money and we're moving the kingdom forward with it. Uh, so I want to encourage you to think about your tithe in terms of teamwork for the advance of the gospel. A second way I think that we can really try to think about teamwork as a public display of the values of the kingdom. So this idea of how many churches are there in Harrisonburg? One. I heard that from John Herringa, the pastor at First Press. And, and um, I've been talking about that lately. And recently, a group of us have been talking about, okay, how can we really live this out, that there's one church in Harrisonburg? A fundamental way we can live it out is stop thinking that we have to do everything, right? If Grace Covenant is doing something amazing, and it's not one of the core systems, then we should be able to advertise it to you guys and say, hey, the church in Harrisonburg has a killer marriage course going on this spring. Now, it's over at this address, but it's the church of Harrisonburg. Or if Financial Peace University or something, the church at Harrisonburg has really got a great offering for people who are struggling with bringing their finances into a line with the kingdom. Now, it's happening at this address. but it's, So we're, we're beginning to work on, and these other pastors, we're all talking about this. What's it going to look like? In our worship guide, it has the church in Harrisonburg, and it lists these amazing things that are being offered because we don't need we don't need five churches of 5,000 in this city. We, we need 10 churches of 500. And no one church has to do everything, right? Because the church of Harrisonburg just has to cover it. And this is team. This is how we can display to the city, the team. Now, the third thing he brings up here, not only unity, not only teamwork, but third, look in verse 28. He talks about fearlessness. We should seek to publicly act not frightened in anything by our opponents. Now, fear is a tricky thing, right? Some people in fear do what? Run. And other people in fear do what? Go all Wolverine on you, right? Um, so look, in, in, in the challenge of living out the faith in our culture, resist fearlessness, especially its manifestations of retreat. Just pull away from the scary city. Turn into ourselves. Let's just protect ourselves and our children. 
Let's eliminate every challenge, every scary thing. Or the other one, let's just attack and conquer and retake the city for Jesus. Both of those are moves of fear. Fearlessness is what he says. Stand firm, stride side by side. Fearlessness is when we catch each other and encourage each other. Now look, fear comes in all kinds of ways. When I was a child, nightmares overwhelmed me. And there are people in this church who like scary movies. And you're always trying to ask me about scary movies. And you're bad. And I want to say, get behind me, Satan. Like I've been memorizing verses to deal with this my whole life. And here you are, like just... Stranger things. I couldn't make it through half the first episode. I quit. So my wife and I, our children like scary movies. So we, we export our children to Courtney Veerman's house, who she likes scary movies. So we're like, you can watch them with her. We're not watching it or to whomever. Maybe you, like me, have struggled with fear, and you need to memorize verses like, maybe you need to memorize Esther chapter 4, verse 16, if I perish, I perish. Or maybe you need to memorize 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. Because the word of God is sharp. It's a sword. It can help you in those moments of fear. This word frightened, it's the word they use of a horse in battle when it got spooked and it bolted and it threw its soldier off and it soldiered. When you get spooked and you bolt, I'm going to pay for it. When you get scared of standing up for the Christian faith and what it clearly says about sexuality and gender, and you bolt, or when you get scared and you go on the attack about sexuality and gender, either one of those moves, right? We spent a whole year as a church working on developing grace and truth on the issue of sexuality and gender, both orthodox doctrine and Christian love in our posture. We've got to learn these hard patterns. Now, I don't have time. I've run out of time. But look what happens in the rest of, the, of, of this passage. If we behave in this way, he says, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. But you of your salvation and that from God. When the church publicly behaves with unity, with teamwork, and with fearlessness, it is a sign God gives the world that we're on the right team. In other words, when, when it gets scary to be a Christian and we just stand there like, we know where this ends. This is going to end with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Christ is Lord. And when I can stand there, when I know that's the end. See, we're living according to a city that has come, but will eventually cover the entire earth. And when we know that, well, there are people around us who don't yet know that. And so they're like, what are, what are you doing? You know, if, if you've been following Colorado uh, football, Deion Sanders kept saying, we're coming, we're coming. Like, if you're not going to, this program, that's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom is coming. Now live like this and believe in this. And then he says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Again, we don't have time to go into it, but I want to point out faith and suffering are both gifts from God, he says. Stop looking at our suffering as a mess up. 
It's the way the kingdom moves forward. As you suffer for the gospel and react to it without fear, in teamwork, and in unity, the gospel advances. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.